Okay, you'll, you'll have to forgive me for this illustration. Okay. <laughs> In July 1961, Vince Lombardi, not Chiefs coach, I'm sorry, okay, just a good illustration. Uh, Vince Lombardi kicked off the first day of training camp for 38 players on his Green Bay Packers football team. Uh, the season before that, they had a heartbreaking loss to the Eagles. Uh, they blew, uh, they, they're leading the whole game. The fourth quarter, they blew the lead, and they lost the game. Uh, the NFL championship lost the whole thing. So when they came to training camp the next season, they expected, okay, it's going to be, and this, this camp's going to stink. It's going to be hard. We're going to get drilled pretty hard. It's going to be difficult. Uh, however, they, they came in, all 38 players, they sat down, and Vince Lombardi held up a football. And the first thing he said at the training camp, these are professional players, these are adults, they get paid for this, millions of dollars, right? And he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he had every single player open up their playbooks, and they started on page, can you guess? Page one. And they began to learn the fundamentals. They learned again how to block how to tackle, how to throw a ball, how to catch, how to hold. I mean, everything just basic, right? This allowed them to win the NFL championship that season, 37 to nothing against the New York Giants. Uh, Vince Lombardi went on then to win the next five, or I'm sorry, not next five, but five NFL championships in seven years. Since that, he never coached a team with a losing season and never lost a playoff game ever again. Pretty Interesting fact there, isn't it? I think that the most fundamental reality of Christianity, of course, is the gospel. So when you come here and I'm saying, we're going to talk about the gospel, it's almost like me saying, brothers, this is a football. This is the gospel. This is not just the, but the gospel is not just the entrance to the Christian life. It's the entirety of the Christian life. So the gospel is not like a jewel on your necklace where you have a necklace, you got the gospel, you got a lot of other pretty things like heaven and the afterlife and God and the Holy Spirit, all these great things. It's not just a uh, jewel on a string of pearls, rather. Instead, it is the necklace. The gospel is the cord. Everything is the gospel. The gospel is everything, right? The gospel is central. It's all that Christianity is. Without the gospel, there is no Christianity. It's, it's everything. It's what you are in. It's what you stand on. It's what you long for. It's what converts you and changes and gives you power. Tim Keller said it this way. The gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. We know we say it's admit, believe, confess. That's how you become a Christian. You admit you're a sinner, believe upon Christ, confess him as your Lord and Savior, right? Well, Tim Keller says the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. So it's not just the beginning. It's everything. It's the whole Christian life. It's all that it is. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul takes us back. To the gospel, the same gospel that he, in, in the book of Romans, so these Roman Christians, right, these are, it's a church in Rome, in chapter 1, one of, the, one of the very first things Paul says to them in chapter, I think it's chapter 1, verse 14, uh, he says, I was eager to preach to you the gospel. It's like, Paul, they're already Christians. I know. I want to preach it to them, but they already know it. That's why I'm going. So even Paul knows this, that the gospel is fundamental to Christianity. It's all that Christianity is, whether new converts or old converts. So today, I hope that you'll see the same thing. That's my desire, that the gospel is everything. So let's look at just verse 1, the first. We're going to break up the verses in a little bit of chunks here, but I want you to see uh, what Paul is doing to the church in Corinth. Remember where we've been. Paul's tackled tons of issues, right? And then he, he puts the brakes on and says, okay, now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. So first, 
This is what we're going through. Point one is the centrality of the gospel. So first, we need to remember the gospel. Okay, verse one. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. This is like telling a fish. Let me tell you about water, right? We know water. Where did all, if you look at the church of Corinth, you remember, again, all their problems. People were getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. Uh, there was adultery with people's ancestral relationships, right? You think your church has problems? Corinth says, yeah, cute, right? All their problems arise from really a twofold answer, positive and negative. Positively, they were just sinning, right? They were, they were just living in sin. They were rebelling. They were being foolish. They were sinning against God's plan for the church, right? Negatively, they were forgetting the gospel. <coughs> Think about it. Chapter 1. Why did some favor others for their wisdom and their name? Remember chapter 1, I, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I, I follow Peter. Why did they do that? Or why was there jealousy and strife in chapter 3? Why was there gross immorality untouched in chapter 5? Why was there a huge focus on self rather than the congregation in chapters 11 through 14? Why, was the, why were they doing it? Well, because they were sinning, but they were forgetting what the gospel tells them, right? Hear what Jesus said in book of Revelation to the church. He said this, that you have forgotten your first love. So Corinthians, are, they're having like a gospel amnesia. They're just, they know it, but they're just not remembering what it is. It, it just, it's left their brain, so to speak. Paul Tripp once said that there's no such thing as a gospel graduate. All right, time for the, the deeper things. I've graduated from the gospel, time for other things. It's just not true. The gospel is everything. It's like the nucleus of a cell. It's the engine to a car. It's the heart of the body. Without those things, those things don't exist, right? As I said, without the gospel, Christianity is dead. There is no Christian life without it. What happens if you don't boat? What happens if you don't dock your boat? What happens? It's going to drift, right? It just floats away. That's what's happening. They're not anchored to the gospel, so they're just they're drifting, right? And we're going to drift if we're not constantly thinking and being focused on the gospel. Secondly, the need for preaching. Look at verse fifteen again. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. So the gospel is by definition good news, right? Uh, you probably heard it said before. Um, Preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, what? Use your words, right? I just don't think that's very helpful. I think it's kind of like, yes, you should live like a Christian as a Christian. I believe that, right? But if the gospel is by definition, the, the word literally means good news, right? It's like, a, it's like a king who sends back one of his runners who just, they just conquered an army, and the runner's coming back and saying, we won, we won, we won. That's Declaration, that's what good news actually gets it from. Right? That's the gospel means declaring, it's speaking, it's actually words. Paul reminds them that he preached the gospel to them. And now he reminds them of that idea. Why? Well, I would say because as Christians or just as people in general, uh, we are prone to doubt more than to trust. If you're like me, you are prone to pride and not humility. You're prone to sinfulness and not righteousness. Left to ourselves, we would and we will wither away. So we need the gospel preached to us. And this is true in the first century in Corinth and it is true uh, with us. Charles Spurgeon once said this in a sermon, and I hope you will catch the, the chuckle here, but also the reality of it. Spurgeon said this preaching to his congregation. I sometimes wonder that you do not get tired of my preaching because I do nothing but hammer away on this one nail. With me, it is year after year, none but Jesus. Oh, you great saints, if you have outgrown 
the need of a sinner's trust in the Lord Jesus, you have outgrown your sins, but you have also outgrown your grace, and your saintship has ruined you. So Spurgeon's saying, I, I want to be known for one thing, and it's preaching Christ. And if that's just tiring, you've outgrown your sin, apparently, and you don't need grace anymore either. In 1916, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a man who became an unusually young doctor in St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. Uh, he, he was a standout med student. He was very smart, very quick. And he, he, because of this, he actually drew the attention of a man named Sir Thomas Horder, who was King George VI at the time. Uh, he was his personal physician. So he's like, hey, this Lloyd-Jones guy, this is, a, this is an exceptional student. Lloyd-Jones then became the... Chiefs, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, the chief clinical assistant to Sir Thomas Horder. As such, one of his main tasks as his chief assistant was to help him to diagnose and to index diseases. So, okay, this guy has these symptoms. Looks like, so not just symptoms, but what's the root? What's the cause of this? That was his job, was to look at what's happening and go deeper, right? Over the next several years, Martin Lloyd-Jones received multiple other degrees and a research scholarship, and then he had his own private practice. He believed himself to be a Christian, but he believed that he was not actually converted. He said that he was converted later on by attending a, a church service at the Westminster Chapel. So consider what happened to this man. He's a, he's a doctor now, but now things have changed. He realized that, he, that he's, he's actually a Christian. Now he understands what the gospel is, what it means to be a believer. And now he realizes that his job to help people get physically better is kind of a, a means to a brick wall. I, he, he wrote in his book, well, I get people to feel better, but then they just go back to the wicked things they were doing, and then they die. I don't really do anything good. I just kind of wasted their health. I just got them better so they could go die again and die an unbeliever. I wasted it. Perhaps one of his favorite, the best things he's written, I think, was his ability to diagnose spiritual conditions and their cause. Remember, he, he looked at disease, looked for a root. Well, he did this with spiritual things, too, in, his, in his, some of his sermons and some of his books. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, and I want you to hear this. I think it's very helpful. He said this, I, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? It's kind of weird, isn't it? In Psalm 42, David has uh, deep sorrow, and he's sliding into sin, sliding into depression and sadness. And he asks himself, Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? David, why are you so sad? Okay, why are you so sad? He's preaching, and he, said, he tells himself, hope in God, self. Friends, this is good news because the world tells you one thing. It says, you should listen to your heart. Trust your heart. Your heart is right. Follow your heart. Do what your heart says. But do you know what the Bible says about your heart? Jeremiah 17 says it is wicked beyond understanding. And Mark 7, Jesus says that's where everything evil comes. Your problems in life, it's not outside problems. It's not this person or this rule or this job or this family or this government. Or, it's not outside. The Bible says your problems are inside. They're, they're in you. You are your greatest problem. So, friends, let's preach the gospel to ourselves to be reminded afresh of who Christ is. And I want to show you how to do this very quick by walking through these, this text very simply, how to do that, what that looks like. You'll see the gospel, is it's, it unfolds into three ways, and that's, that's kind of where we're going next. 
So how do I do that? How do, what's it look like to preach the gospel to myself? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 1 again. So first, you are saved by the gospel. Look at verse 1. The gospel I preached to you, which you received. So the Corinthians heard the gospel, and what did they do with it? They received it, right? They just hear it and say, cool. They took it in. They received it, right? They grabbed a hold of it with their ears, so to speak, with their heart. Uh, that's the first day of the Christian life, right? You receive the gospel. It's being converted. Nobody is born a Christian, right? We're not born friends of God. We're not born children of God. We're not born in right standing with God. It's been said before that God has children, but he has no grandchildren, meaning it, he, can, he has children, but people who are the children of God's children are not his children. You need to be converted to be a child of God, right? The greatest need of every human being is not better health care, better morality, better schools, better governments. The only real need is receiving the gospel. As a Christian, do you believe that? This is, Christianity is that, right? That's, that's the only hope. I want to give you a scary statistic here. In 2020, so it feels like yesterday, uh, 3,000 Americans were polled on theological questions. So what does our country believe about the Bible? If you want to look up, it's called the State of Theology, and I think it's called State of Theology in America. Uh, it's easily set up. It's very, very sorrowful about what, what we believe in the world, about the Bible and about God. It's quite terrifying. But out of these 3,000, there were 700 people who said they were Christians who took uh, these texts, who were asked a lot of questions, and they answered this way. So out of those 700 Christians, 61% of them strongly agree. How what does that mean? Yes, not just yeah, yes, right? Strongly agree. So more than half agree that we are, quote, people are, quote, born innocent in God's eyes. Friends, if that's true, then what is the gospel for? If that's true, why did Jesus have to come? If that's true, then what's the Bible for? Stunning, isn't it? Why do we need to receive the gospel if I'm born already fine? Or at least, you know, I'm not Hitler, but, you know, I'm average. What's the, what's, what's the point? Well, the Bible says that everyone needs the gospel because Romans 3 says that we're all born condemned. Right? If you just look at God's standard, you look at God's law, you know you've not kept it. Right? I have lied. I have stolen. I'm not, I don't love God with all my heart every day. I love my neighbor as myself. I do covet. I do look with lust. I do have hate in my heart. I don't love God all the time. I don't care about the Sabbath day sometimes. I'm not perfect. I don't love what, the way I should. I don't always honor my parents. Ten Commandments. Even just those, I'm just tanking. Right? Friends, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your children, your grandchildren, your cousins... Your barber, your checkout person, your waiter, your mailman, those on the line next to you at the checkout counter, all of them need the gospel. Do, do, you, do you believe that? You have to, if we believe the Bible's true. Paul reminds the Corinthians that they've received the gospel, which implies two things. Number one, that they believed it. Also, two, that Paul told them. They didn't just watch and go, oh, that's, a, that's the gospel. They have to actually hear it with their ears and believe with their heart. The receiving of the gospel, as I said, is the start of the Christian life. That's the starting line. So in a nutshell, uh, this is kind of all next sermon. It's verses 3 through like 10. But what is the gospel? 
But we begin to talk about that defining, right? Well, gospel is very simple. It means good news. Well, what's the good news? He said, there is a, there's, I think there's four best ways to get to it. There's four things to remember. God, man, Christ, response. It's the best way for me to kind of put in categories. I, I didn't invent that. I stole that. So I, I guess I broke a commandment there by stealing that. Borrowed. Number one, there is a God. He's your creator. He's the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is holy. He is good. He is righteous. He is just, right? He is your king regardless if you believe in him or not. He owns you. He owns everything. And he's perfect, right? He expects us to obey him. Well, we don't because we're sinful. God created man good in the garden, but man said, ah, I'd rather rebel. So because of Adam's sin, we're all credited with sin. When Adam sinned, we sinned, right? We didn't just watch. We were in Adam as if we sinned the day that Adam sinned, right? Romans chapter 5. So therefore, all of us are born sinful and sinning. So we're not just born, it's not like we're born, oh, I have no choice. No, you choose every day. That's why you sin, right? You sin because you're a sinner. You like to sin. We're all good at it. So if God is just and good and holy and I am sinful, unrighteous, and unholy, what does that mean? That means one day we're going to meet and it's going to be really bad. God's angry with sin and he says he's angry at sinners. Right? He's angry at them. He actually is. He's a judge, Psalm 5 says. He's, he has wrath, the Bible says, right? But God's also rich in mercy. So those who would stand before him saying, wow, I have lied. I have broken God's commandments. I deserve to go to hell. The wage of sin is death. For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? So God so loved the world that he did what? He sent his son, who is Jesus, who is fully God, became a person to hang on the cross for sin and for sinners in the place of sinners, as if you were there, but you weren't. And God takes your sin and puts it on Jesus, and God punishes his son for it. And he died. He actually died. The wage of sin is what? Death, he had to actually die. He dead three days, rose on the third, ascended to heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he sits enthroned, ruling all things as the God-man. He commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel, which means this. If you turn from your sins, put your trust in Christ, God doesn't just say, uh, neutral, we're good now. Remember how in Adam, it's, 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 it's as if you were in Adam sinning, though you weren't there, it was credited to you? Friends, the gospel is so huge that by faith, God counts you as if you live Jesus' life. It's righteous plagiarism. He credits it to you. You sign your name by faith, yours. So in Christ, it's not, it's not just, oh, I, I'm okay. It's as if you've always obeyed. Now you're adopted into the family of God. You get the spirit to give you a new heart so you love the things of Christ. It's not a forced belief. It's, oh, I love him. I treasure him. That's a Christian. That's the gospel, right? And all men everywhere need to repent and believe that. No exceptions. That's the gospel. That's what we bank our life on here, nothing else. If you've never heard it before or don't understand that, please talk to me after. But repent and believe the gospel if you've not. God's a good judge. But the gospel, good news, actually changes how we live, doesn't it? It shakes you at its core, right? We've all received news that have changed our lives, right? Maybe pregnancy. I'm pregnant. <laughs> cool, right? You just want to jump in the air like a crazy person, right? Deaths. Diagnosis. We all remember hearing about 9-11, right? You just, world was just rocked, right? I remember hearing about Ben Laden getting assassinated. All right, like, oh, it just shakes your life, right? The good news, if truly received, it alters your life. It actually does, right? That's what it means to be saved. As a Christian, it means you're actually saved. Biblically, you're saved from God's wrath, by God's grace, 
to God's family for God's glory, right? You're saved from God, by God, to God, for God, right? It's all about God. We're just invited into it. Kevin DeYoung said the gospel is not a message about what we need to do for God, but what God has done for us. And yet, friends, the gospel is more than past tense. Being a Christian doesn't mean you have merely a reference point in history. Okay, I was converted then. That's all that I know. Here's a question. What if you don't remember when you were converted? What if your memory fades? You go, man, I just don't remember the day. Or what if you doubt? What if I wasn't serious enough? Was, was I genuine? Did I, did, I, did I say the right thing? Was, was I true? So that's my conversion. I don't really know the day I was converted. I know that the time frame, you know, 12, 13-ish. I, mean, I think I was converted then. Remember, I don't really know exactly the day, but I have an idea. But friends, we can't base our Christianity, our trust, our faith on a particular validation in history. Do you need assurance? Sometimes I do. Let me ask you a question. What if I asked you, married men, do you love your wife? What if, what if you responded this way? Well, I married her 15 years ago. Sounds like a, sounds like a divorce is coming, doesn't it? You would never say that, right? You would look back to, well, I, 15 years ago I married her. That's not what I asked you. I, do you love her? Well, 15 years ago I married her. That's not, that's, not the, that's not the right answer. So how do you know? So are you a Christian? Well, I did it when I was seven, when I was 10. Do you love Christ? Well, when I was seven I did it. That's not what we're asking. How do you know? Number three, you're standing in the gospel. Look at verse one again. So the gospel, which you receive, in which you stand, right? It's a completed action. It's receiving, but it's still true. It's ringing in your ears. I did it, and it's just, it's like it just happened. It's still ringing in my ears, right? The Corinthians receive the gospel, and Paul says, look at your feet. Okay. Are you standing on it? Yeah. Do you, do you see the rock there? Yes. Then rest, right? If you're currently resting or standing or trusting upon the gospel, Paul's saying, look to that, right? We don't receive the gospel by faith to return to godlessness. We don't get transformed by Christ to then just deform back to where we were. That's not conversion, is it? Instead, those who receive the gospel, listen to this, are presently trusting. They're standing in Christ. Your current present assurance is built on Hebrews 6, verse 18. Burn this into your brains, friends. It is impossible for God to lie. That's your only hope. It is impossible. It, it can't. Can't. If God lies, we are going to hell. If God lies, we're dead. We're toast, right? But if the foundation is firm, the building won't fall. I think Charles Spurgeon once said that God's written our names with a diamond pen, as in like, can't be erased, it's, it's written, it's not going anywhere, it's diamond, it's firm, it's hard, it's secure, right? He says, before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. So my present day believing is a confirmation of what God already knows. So let me just put this really tangibly here. For assurance, don't look to a feeling. Your heart's deceitful. Don't look to a moment, though it's okay to say, man, when I was 12, I did that, love it, amen, great. For your current resting is not you or a moment necessarily. What is your resting place? It's Christ, right? 
That's the anchor, right? He doesn't change. That's your anchor. It's your present day trusting in Christ. He doesn't go anywhere. Have you guys ever flown in a plane before? Yes. I'm not a big fan. But uh, something I learned of flying in a plane was uh, in, in elementary school, if you learned the, um, the map of the states, what's really nice is they have really clean-cut lines. Here's Nevada, nice square, right? Here's California, some weird old shape, right? Well, when you're flying over in a plane, you don't see those lines very well. Where's the state? I can't see a line, right? You just can't tell. They're not cut out. They're not drawn, right? Let's say that you... Go to the airport, and let's say you cross over into Florida. Praise God, Florida. What a great place to live right now. Weather and everything. How would you know you're in Florida? Let's say someone asked you at, at, at the airport. So did you get to Florida? What would you say? What, well, when, when did you get here? I don't know. When did you cross over? I don't know. Well, how do you know you're in Florida? Well, the ground says Florida. I'm in Florida, right? I'm standing in Florida. Friends, that's the same with the gospel. Are you presently trusting? Are you standing in Christ now? Are you trusting in Christ? Not Florida. Are you standing in Christ? That's how you know. So morality, upbringing, conduct, church attendance, let those things go. I love those things, so don't think I'm neglecting them. That's not your hope. Just not. Are you standing in Christ? That's your hope. That's the only shot that you have. Uh, question number one from our catechism says this, What is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong both body and soul in life and death to, Jesus, to, to God and to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What's your only hope? It's that. Do you, do you hear that? And then church membership, friends, is a manifestation of that, that we affirm what you declare. We see what you believe, Right? You say, I've been converted, I believe X, Y, and Z, I agree with the doctrine of the church, and we would say, sounds legit, let's ask some questions. Okay, he's in, right? Mem membership affirms what you already say, so it grants you assurance, and then it grants us assurance saying, he's converted, right? I'm converted. Therefore, all the work in, in the church body as a believer, confessing your sin, praying for each other, preaching, encouraging, teaching, bearing burdens, all those are directed at one thing, Building my assurance. Man, I'm just falling short again. Well, brother, pray. Confess. Confess to us. Pray with us, right? All we're doing in here is to, I mean, chapter 14, friends, what was it all about? Encouraging one another. Push one another. Gunshots in the church. Uh, it's for each other, right? That's what Paul is saying here. Assurance, then, is a community project. Don't be a solo Christian. But what about the sin that plagues me? Kale, I believe I'm a Christian. I'm resting in Christ, but I just keep falling short. It's this one sin. I keep doing this thing. I keep having this problem. I keep acting like this. I keep saying this. I keep thinking this. I keep struggling with this. What in the world do I do? I got no shot. I, I just can't beat it. It's plaguing me. clouds me. The Bible says that the old man is crucified, but Spurgeon said he's slow at dying. Well, my sin's dead, I know, but why do I keep sinning for? What's, what's my hope? Help me. Well, the cure is, again, in the gospel. Number four, sanctifying in the gospel. Look at, look at verse two. The gospel, and by which you are being saved. Well, back the truck up, Paul. You just said we are saved. Now we're being saved. Okay, which one is it? 
both. Thomas Watson said the Christian life is military. The same gospel that we receive to be joined to Christ enables and empowers us to be made more like Christ by the Holy Spirit. So friends, we are daily being saved from what? From the power of sin, right? So when Jesus died, remember three P's regarding sin in the Christian life. Okay, This is helpful to think about what it's like. So Jesus died to take away the penalty of sin. The wage of sin is death, gone. Okay? He is actively saving me from the power of sin. So every day you're growing more to like Christ. You're still going to fall short, but you're growing more to like Christ to hate sin more. It has less of a grip. It's still there, right? So penalty power. One day I will be saved from the presence of sin. It's glory. That's heaven, right? It's what Christ's work has done, is doing, and will do. Do you hear that? Past, present, future, right? So by receiving the gospel, the penalty is gone, but now we're being saved every day from the power of sin. However, I want you to be clear. This is called sanctification. Taken all of Chad's lesson tonight into one little sermon bite. So, sorry, Chad. He's teaching on sanctification tonight, which is going to be very helpful. But sanctification is not, hear, 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 me, hear me very clearly here, it's not just not doing bad things, right? AA can help you do that. They can. Do a fine job, as far as I know. Any unbeliever can stop being a liar. Any non-Christian cannot go off with, off with his secretary. Great. So sanctification isn't just not doing bad things. Anybody can do that. It's different. Because without Christ, those people are still hopeless, still helpless, and are still enslaved to sin. They are still dead in their sins. They have no hope. They just have a different idol. So sanctification is only possible if God is pleased. If Christ has pleased him for me, I can please God in righteousness, right? All of my hope in becoming more like Christ is that Christ has died for me and risen for me. So, brothers, sin can only be conquered if you are spiritually alive, if you're born again. You can only conquer sin that you're already dead to. That's what I'm trying to get out here. You can only please God if he's already pleased with you. You can only grow in righteousness if you've been declared righteous. Do you hear that? That is foundational. If, if we miss that, it's, we're hopeless, right, in becoming a better Christian. What came first? Chicken or the egg? Uh, what came first? Uh, the Exodus or the Ten Commandments? Exodus, right? First they left, then they got the law, right? So first you're delivered, now you obey. That's the same thing. First you're converted, saved, now you obey, right? It's not the, if you get the other way around, that's not Christianity. It's salvation and then obedience, right? Think of the, uh, the Israelites with uh, following, I'm sorry, fighting Goliath. Okay, they see Goliath, what do they do? I'll take him. No, they cry like little girls, right? He's going to kill us all, right? We're dead, right? And then David goes and just slays them, right? My favorite part, lops off the head, got him, right? And then what do the Israelites do? Do you remember? Are they trembling? What do they do? They storm the gate. They charge, right? The Philistines run like little girls again. And the Israelites go, all right, we got this. And they just charge them and they, they level them, right? They're they go, they kill them all, right? I think not all, but they, they conquer them after the Goliath is dead, right? That's the Christian life. Jesus is the better David. He slaughters sin and death. He 
we're scared of sin, we're death, oh, we're going to die. Jesus comes, wipes them out, and then what do you do? I could follow that. You run in the wake of him, right? And you go out and conquer the little Philistines, the little sin in your life. That's what you do. But if Jesus didn't slay him, you cannot slay anything. The process of sanctification is a replacement of loves and hates. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation, new creature, right? Thus, Hebrews 1.9 says this, that Jesus loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That is what being a Christian is. That's what sanctification is. If you're a Christian, you have new loves. You used to love sin. Now you hate it. You used to kind of yawn at Jesus. Now you love him, right? You used to hide in sin. Now you expose it. You used to have a secret life. Now it's public, right? You have new taste buds. You're like a caterpillar to a butterfly. You don't drink nectar anymore. You drink, or you don't eat little caterpillars. What, what, what do caterpillars eat? Bugs? I don't know. Le- leaves. And the hungry caterpillar eats a lot of their food. It's getting confused there. Caterpillars eat leaves, right? Do butterflies eat leaves? No, they eat nectar, right? The new creature, new desires, right? So the way you progress in Christian life is by being a new Christian. You have to be a believer. You taste and see the Lord is good. That's what conversion looks like. So how do I conquer pride? How do I conquer sin? Well, it's by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the word, right? Kale, I really have a covetous heart. I just want other things, other people, other lives, other families, other jobs, other retirement. I want, I want, I want. How do I fight being so covetous? How do you do that? Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from love of money, for God has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, God's enough. That's how you fight your sin, right? You don't just say, stop it. You should say, stop it, but then you look by faith, right? How do I fight pride? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Okay, Lord, help me to be humble, right? How do I fight lust? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do I fight hopelessness? Man, this, my friend never hears the gospel. He's a dying unbeliever. I don't know what to do about him. Well, with God, all things are possible, right? What if you're anxious? You're just always worried, always nervous, always scared, always sweaty, always nervous, always can't sleep at night. Do not be anxious about anything, Philippians 4 says, but by everything, by prayer, make your request known to God. That sanctification. Growing in Christ's likeness through the word by the Spirit. Lastly, holding fast to the gospel. Look at verse 2 again. First, we have to hold fast. Verse 2, if you hold fast, right? This is a big if. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. A living faith, then, is a persevering faith. The Christian life is a, mar- is a marathon, but you all have to run. There are no just, there's no sideline Christians. There's no audience Christians. You're running, right? Lest you be disqualified. Your faith is fastened to the word preached. That's what Paul is saying. Uh, one of the scariest parables in the Bible, in my opinion, is a parable of the soil. Do you know that parable? The seed is cast. There's four soils, right? One's like cement. It just bounces off. That's one that rejects the gospel. It's that. I don't want it. There, two are very scary. One receives the gospel and says, I believe it. With joy. And he dies, an unbeliever. Right? Or the, the God, he's not, he's not really converted, right? That's the idea. The third one, I believe it. With joy. Trouble comes. Forget it. Out. It's only the fourth soil. 
that he has. He received the gospel. So friends, Jesus tells us to put our hands to the plow, not to look back. Don't be like Lot's wife who looked back. Don't be like that. As a Christian, the command to hold fast should sound to you something like this. Friend, keep eating ice cream and don't stop. What would you say? Okay. Cookie dough ice cream. I'm, you, you have that there? I'll eat a whole gallon and get sick and eat it again. Okay. Okay, I'll keep eating ice cream. Okay. Hold fast to Christ. Okay. That's this warning. If you're a believer, this warning should be okay. I don't want to do any, any, anything else anyway. What I want to do is hold fast, right? However, the normal Christian life doesn't always feel like that, does it? I believe the normal Christian life is pretty dismal. It's believing against unbelief. It's fighting against apathy. It's praying against feeling prayerless, right? It's unrutting my spiritual rut. So friends, cling to Christ. He is your God. He is your treasure. He is your all. But at times, my heart is often cold. Is your heart cold for Christ ever? It's not always like a blazing furnace, right? If you're, like, if you're like most Christians in the world, sometimes it's like embering coals. Just, I mean, I love them. I just feel it right now. I don't feel it. It's a flickering candle, maybe. What's my security? I won't sing it to you. I don't want to scare you away. But I, I will read you some lyrics from this song called, He Will Hold Me Fast. When I fear my faith may fail, Christ will hold me fast. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. The reality is that in my fear of falling, that's a sense of grace in the heart. I don't want to be cut off. Well, only a Christian would speak that way. Do you understand that? Warnings to a Christian should flee you to Jesus. Um, do you guys have kids or grandkids who don't like storms? I got one. When storms happen, little kids, what do they do? And they're scared. What do they do? Who do they run to? Mommy, daddy, right? The ones they love, the ones they trust, right? Because these warnings, these threatenings drive them to who they trust, right? Friends, the warnings in the Bible, if you're a Christian, these are real warnings. But they should drive you to Jesus. I don't want to fall away. I want to run to you, Jesus. I, I want more of Christ. John MacArthur said it this way. If you could lose your salvation, you would. That's where I'm at. So take heart. Second, you are warned. I believe it's true that true Christians will always persevere. A true Christian will never lose his salvation. God will not unjustify a sinner, erase their name, who's a converted person. He'll never do that. But look at verse 2. Unless you believed in vain. Uh-oh. So we can't lose our salvation, but Paul just says you can believe in vain. Oh dear. The same Christ that promised assurance in John 3, 5, 6, 8, and 10 also said in Matthew 5 that if you continue in sin and don't cut your hand off, you'll go to hell with two. Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 warn against unrepentant, persistent sin. They warn against false faith. False, false faith. They admonish vain belief. It's possible to say, Lord, Lord, I did these things, and, and what will Jesus say? I don't even know who you are possible the question you must ask yourself is how far will you go to save your soul will you cut off things that cause you to sin 
A type of faith that is stagnant, like a mossy, filled, filthy pond, is not a true faith. Faith rather leans upon Christ. And those that don't will, will find that they actually did fall away. They actually weren't believers, right? So diagnose your heart. I want to close with, with a simple illustration here. John Bunyan had the same problem. I love John Bunyan. He's been dead for a long time. If you want to know an, an embarrassing reality, he is on my screensaver. Not my family, but a dead person, a dead man. <laughs> Judge me all you want. I don't care. <laughs> it's embarrassing. I love John Bunyan. He had a lot of spiritual doubt. He didn't think he, he, he's a Christian a lot of times. He had a lot of doubt. Here's what he said. One day I was passing to a field, and suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven, and I thought I could see Christ at God's right hand. Yes, there indeed was my righteousness. So wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say about me that I did not have righteousness, for it was standing there before him. I also saw that it was not my good feelings that made me righteous better, or that made my bad feelings make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness with God was Jesus Christ himself. There was nothing but Christ before my eyes. I was going to think of him now. As, I was now thinking of him concerning his blood, his burial, his resurrection. I was thinking of Christ sitting at the right hand of God. Friends, your assurance is not based on you. It's based on Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. One hymn says it this way as we close. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I have not died. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Let's pray.